I worked at a small consultancy. I saw how he sold to people. I saw how he priced things. I saw what he paid me versus what he charged. And I was like, why am I not doing this? You know, like yeah. there's a 50% margin there. That means I should be getting that 50% margin. Hey everybody, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jess. And we are two internet friends exploring the intersection of independent business and rails. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Indie Rails. Today we're joined by very special guest, John Nunemaker. He is a longtime Rails developer, ran the Rails Tips blog years back. He's an open source maintainer. You probably heard of HTT Party and Flipper. He's been building products for a very long time at Ordered List, then working at GitHub, and now at Fewer and Faster. And we're excited to have him on the show today. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me. I'm excited too. Yeah, welcome, John. Also, you did great on HTT Party. I was just going to let you know that. I don't think I've heard anyone say it <laughs> right the first time. It's really, will you say it right within the first five times? So Practicing I remember- Practicing it yesterday. <laughs> yeah. No, you. I could tell you practiced. It was. It came out really good. I remember Defunct telling me a long time ago, I can't say it. There's too many Ps every time. So Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Thanks. You're a, a longtime Rails person and been doing consulting, dev work. You've been in the scene for a long time. There's a lot we could probably dive into with your story, but love to get a maybe a speed run of your career history. Find out like where you've been, especially for people who haven't heard of you. Sure. Yeah. Like a lot of people had, you know, special keyboards and like were gamers in high school and, you know, hacked their calculators and like all that kind of stuff. I, you know, I spelled hello. That was about it. I was not <laughs> like a geek per se or anything. You know, I took things apart as a kid, but like I wasn't smart enough to put them back together. So it really was, that was a failure as well. I was really into like sports. I, I loved sports. I love basketball to this day. So it was less of the, you know, like coder, like whatever kind of from the beginning and more just rounded, played a lot of sports, was in the plays, like stuff like that. And then in college, my junior year, I took, I know I'm going way back, but it has a point. I took a class in, they had the May term, like a month long intensive, like three hours a day class. And I chose web development and it was with the person who was the web, what did they call them back then? Like web administrator or webmaster? Yeah, the webmaster. Yes, I could not remember the term. And so he taught it and he was so passionate and he loved it. And he taught like Dreamweaver and Photoshop and like we made and Flash. We like, I, I remember my final project was like the website looked like a tractor and it was for like my dad's farm. And so it was oakprairiefarms.com and stuff. It, it doesn't exist like that anymore. But yeah, that was like how I got into it. And I was like, this is awesome. This is what I want to do. But they had no classes for web stuff. Like I took programming, I was in computer information systems. I had done that kind of thing, but the fact that I could just click a button and like my mom could see something on, you know, an hour away was just like addicting. So, so I was like, okay, I want to do something. So I, he agreed to do like an independent study with me. So I took a, I literally the Sam's how to learn PHP and my sequel in 30 days. That was like the book that I learned on. And so I started doing some PHP in my sequel. I, I turned that like independent study into business thing too. And so like this bed and breakfast lady that I knew needed a website. I needed a project. But I was like, this is worth something to her. So I was like, I don't know, like $400. So I did, I was like, how about $400? She was <laughs> yeah. like, that sounds fair. So I made like an order form for her and all this kind of stuff and a website. And that was like my first real project. And I made money on it, which was cool. And then I was always like iterating on my own website and, you know, just kept redesigning it every like two or three months. And 
a local like RV place actually stumbled on it and they were looking for interns. And so he like pinged me and was like, Hey, do you want to be an intern? And I was like, yeah, sure. And he was like, okay, here's 15 bucks an hour. And I was like, that's more money than, how will I spend it? You know, what will I do? (laughs) So I got to make 15 bucks an hour. I was working on PHP and my sequel for a Skyline RV as like a, you know, just, and I remember like when I first started, I was like, I don't understand how like any of this code works. It was just totally figuring things out, but he was patient. He would help. And I kind of like, slowly figured it out. I worked there for a little while after graduating and then they didn't have a, like a job anymore. And so I had to find something else. So I worked at a small consultancy. So I got to see like, it was maybe two or three of us, you know, that that worked at it. And so I got to see like the sales, I got to see the different products, like hosting, they hosting an email was like a large portion of what they did. Were you doing Rails at this point? No, this was still all like PHP, MySQL. There is where the first time I did Ajax, So Ajax came out and I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. I can type a thing in the page updates without changing. I was like, whoa, I think I used like Sajax. I don't know if you guys remember that S Ajax is it was like a PHP thing to do Ajax back when it was hard. And I'm realizing now how old I am. So, (laughs) but yeah, so it was, there's no rails yet. This is like 2004 probably. And then from there I joined up with Steve who I've been business partners with off and on forever. But how did y'all meet? How do we meet? So we actually went to school together. So we were at the same college and I couldn't stand him because he would come into class, turn in his homework and leave. And I would be there for hours in the computer lab. And I was like, this guy is a jerk. He had taken classes before. He's also like just a you know brilliant problem solver. And, but then hilariously, he's more now the designer in the front end and I'm like the programmer. So we kind of ended up switching roles and stuff, but that's how we met. And then we had a mutual friend right after college who like, he was like, you guys are doing the same things. You guys should know each other. And so we met at TGI Fridays and had a meal and he was like, we're hiring at Notre Dame. Like he was at University of Notre Dame at the point. We're hiring, you should apply. I was like, okay, so I applied. So then that's how I ended up from this small consultancy and over to Notre Dame, worked there for a couple of years. And that's where I started getting into Rails. It was like 2005, 2006, stumbled on it. And I remember you know, being giddy about it and how amazing, like the generators and all that. So then, but I was in cold fusion then. So they had cold fusion. So I was writing that. And I remember no matter what we did, OIT would not let us use rails. Like we just, oh, we don't want we want to use this new, it's amazing. They're like, no, we could use Java or cold fusion. That was it. And so I actually rewrote most of the generators and like a bunch of the stuff in cold fusion. So like we could just hit a button, generate, create all the files, create all the SQL queries, do all the stuff. And that was huge for us. And eventually like they saw, like our group saw how fast we were moving on things. And so then they were like, all right, we're just going to pay for our own Rails hosting and go around, circumvent, you know, the OIT. And so that's, we use Rails machine way back in the day and set up our own thing. We did a few different projects and that's where we started on Conductor, which is like a, a CMS and it's still in use at Notre Dame and has, I think I want to say probably like 80, 90% of the websites from the university are in that now and running in it. And still have friends there that are day-to-day, keep it alive. And then from there, Steve and I worked together. We worked on Conductor. That's where we started splitting roles. And he, I was going more backend. He was going more front-end and design. And then he left. And a year later, you know, he was, we just kind of had this awkward conversation. Where we're like, should we? Yeah, I don't, uh, okay. And so then I left and joined him. And then we did order list. And right away, we were like, okay, we're not going to consult forever, but that pays the bills. And so then... That led to building a couple of products. And then we were friends with the people at GitHub from having from conferences. It was all just from conferences, Ruby conferences and stuff like that. 
And so when New Orleans, the RubyConf there, would either you guys go to that or mm -hmm. no? Okay. No. So the RubyConf in New Orleans, you know, Chris was there, Chris Wanstroth, and I chatted with him in the bar for a little while. And then he like emailed a week later and was like, you know, what if I invested in an ordered list? And I was like, well, we don't really need money, but we like you. And so then he flew into town and was like, okay, why don't we just buy you? And we're like, okay, that sounds cool. That would be probably the <laughs> only place we would have went to. Yeah. And so that was GitHub. And then, you know, GitHub got bought by Microsoft. So then left and Steve had left like a year earlier before that. And so I just rejoined him at Box Out, which is, you know, social media graphics for mostly for sports, but we have non-sports people that use this as well. And then, you know, from there, while I was at GitHub, I knew I was going to be done. And so that's how I kind of, I was like, I, I want to move on. I like small, I like indie, I like, you know, huge return on investment. I like huge ability to impact things and like having to be like one person in like a thousand, 2000 person company just was draining for me. Like you spend so much time communicating what you're doing instead of doing what you're doing. And so that was my, that was like, I was like, I want to get out. So I was like, Fear and Faster, I'll start that. And then I ended up just joining Steve. And then we just kind of did Fear and Faster on the side. And now we're like starting to like, okay, let's make it a real thing. So that's kind of like the long intro of like how I meandered to like today. Going back to when you guys started order list, do you find it hard to get going or was it pretty easy to get clients right out the bat? Well, Steve is really good at like sales and figuring out what people want and stuff like that. So I feel like it wasn't really hard at all, mostly just from the standpoint of like, he was like well-known in the web standards and the web design community. So like he was getting regular work. I was relatively well-known in the Rails community at that point. And so like within six months or so, like I started bringing in contracts. And so the consulting side was pretty easy. I would say the part that was hard was you know, the desire at that point was to be like 37 signals and like to bootstrap and to make software as a service and have recurring revenue. There's nothing better than recurring revenue. It was like, that was like the really big trend. And so I feel like that was the hard thing was like, we had to consult, we had to consult all day long and make money. This is terrible. I want to have my own software. So I don't have any boss, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. and now I realize like, either way you have a boss, like, it doesn't really matter. There's no way to escape that you will always have that. The somebody hard thing to was to you. Exactly. There's always somebody to answer to. The hard thing there was just, we basically worked two jobs, you know, and we were young so we could do it, but I wrecked my body. I mean, I just completely wrecked like my hands, dry eyes, like every <laughs> overweight, every single thing you can possibly have. And then I spent my first like three, four years of GitHub just trying to reverse that basically trying to get more work-life balance, trying to exercise, trying to eat better you know, dropped a, a ton of weight, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it, it was hard from the standpoint of like, it was long hours, but I was young. And so it was like, who cares? And just, and I loved it. Was it hard to hire? You, you guys hired people on, right? Yeah. I feel like this is just how it's always worked for us. We've never been big on hiring because we're, I don't know, I guess we're just, we focus on like efficiency and like keeping expenses small so that margins are higher, you know? So because we did that, we weren't really looking to hire. We were just going to kind of had the basis covered because we had Steve with front end, we had me with back end. So there was like a lot of stuff where it was like, you know, we didn't really need more people. And so we were like, let's just keep it small. But then what happened was we had one guy, John Hoyt, who just, he was always at our office. And like, we were talking a lot because we're, you know, trying to sell our wares. And so we were doing a lot of conference talks and we we're like, SlideShare is terrible. We just hated it. And we we're like, 
you know, stupidly, let's just take them on, you know? And so we started working on speaker deck and then Hoyt was always there. So Hoyt was like, well, how, why don't I work on it? You know? And we're like, okay. So it was kind of almost like his job interview is he just started hacking on it all the time. And then at some point he was like, I really want out of my other business. And so I'm going to like have them buy me out and I want to program. And we're like, you've been programming with us for a year. Why don't we just make this happen? So that was like a really natural thing. And then around the same time, Brandon was kind of like exiting a company and we were like, we're not going to talk you out of leaving or anything, but if you leave, please talk to us, you know, kind of a thing. And so then, and we had just hired Hoyt and he was good friends with him. I mean, this is, we had all the four of us and then like a wider group are the people that went to Baltimore twice in the sprinters, uh, which I think we talked about before we hit record, but you know, that kind of stuff. Like there was a, a large group of us that like were together a lot at conferences locally. And then at the big ones, Ruby and rails and stuff. So I feel like from that standpoint, hiring was very easy. Like we hired them. And at the time we were working on words of friends and words of friends went from, I think maybe, you know, 70,000 requests a minute when we started to a million requests a minute when we stopped. So it was like this massive growth. So they were just like, yes, if you can hire good people, we will just start, you know, helping basically pass that on through. So we're like, okay. So we hired both of them. And then we realized we needed more design help because Steve was getting pulled into some of the programming stuff. And so that's when we hired Matt, the last one. And that was like, he was, I went to school with him as well. So he was doing web stuff before I was, and he was designing and, and more like on the front end side of things. And so it was just a natural thing. We're like, okay, we need a designer, knew him from college and he had kept in touch. I don't think it was hard because it was like, they were just natural. Like we had the throughput and the work and the money and the revenue to cover them lined up from like words of friends and other things. And then additionally, we already knew them and had strong like working relationships. Like Brandon, we had worked with on several like consulting projects where his previous company and us had worked together on things because both were like similarly sized and stuff like that. So I think that worked out really good. And the same thing with Garrett. I have tried to work with Garrett so many times, wanted to, and we've almost made it work out. And then, you know, with Flipper now, it's like, all right, we're not doing anything with Flipper. We have got to move it forward. The only way we're going to move it forward is if we have somebody on it all the time. And then they're going to naturally become this snowball of momentum. It's going to pull us in, you know, so that more happens on it. And so that we were like, okay, let's put our own money in. We'll hire somebody who we're going to hire. And I was like, Garrett, like I just, it was not, it was a no brainer. So, and again, like just long working relationship, kept in touch with him, you know, for the last 10, 15 years, whenever we were in Dallas, McKinney, Texas is where Words of Friends was based. So we would fly into Dallas and then we'd go to McKinney. McKinney's kind of on the outskirts. Every single time we would meet up with him and with Adam, the real Adam, or I don't remember what his Twitter name is anymore, but we would meet up and you know go to dinner and stuff like that. So like that kind of stuff, it was always just like friends. We knew their talent. We knew their skill. We knew that we would get along with them and we had a need and the revenue was there to cover them. Or in the case of Garrett, we're like, if we don't do Flipper now, it just won't work. You know, it, it doesn't seem like it will really be a thing in, you know, four or five years because there'll be so many. I mean, even now there's, you know, we started it four years ago. There was like launch darkly. That was it. There was like maybe split. There was like nobody doing it. And if we had hit it hard, then, you know, we would be big now. But now instead we waited four years and kind of dinked around and slowly did it. And so now it's like, there's 30 of them. I mean, there's just so many different ones. Interesting. You mentioned friends. We interviewed Matt Gordon with Expected Behavior, and I think you guys worked on some projects together. And in their company, like Motto or the tagline on their website is like a group of friends working together. It sounds... Oh, is it? I didn't even know that. Yeah. Very similar philosophy, it seems like. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, it could be like 
could be seen as bad because if you're just hiring people that like are very similar to you or whatever. So we've even thought about a lot with like Flipper or and with Box Out is like, how do we like diversify from just four white dudes and stuff like that? Because I feel, you know, long-term, that's what I, I would rather get more different ideas in, but it's so easy initially to just, you already have Brandon or with, you know, Hoyt or with Garrett, the, the communication pathways are already there. It's just so easy to like start with that, at least in the beginning. And it's really cool that I think software just leads to that, especially working with open source, because it's, it's so easy to work on projects together and just kind of naturally fall into things like that. I would say almost all of them have worked on, we've worked on open source together at some point. That's like a very common connection point. I don't think I would have ever thought about that until you said it, but that's a really good point because that definitely has been the case for me. Speaking of open source, like thinking through your career history so far, you've been really busy. Like how did you fit in all this writing and OSS stuff? on top of all of your consulting and everything else? Again, like I ruined my health, basically. I just, I worked way too much. So like my twenties, I just, I mean, I worked from the time I got up till the time I went to bed. A lot of times on the weekends, I would be hacking at 3 a.m., 4 a.m. My wife would be in, in bed in the room next to me, you know, it was not like a sustainable path, but that's, but it worked back then. And then also the more you do something, I feel like the more efficient you become at it. There's a difference between the, for the person who's had, 10 years of growth and who's had the same year 10 times, you know, that quote that spins around. And I feel like I, because I worked hard at trying to get better at writing and trying to get better at open source stuff, that made it easier because it was like, once you have a couple gems, you're like, okay, now I have a pattern. This is exactly how I'm going to make gems every time. This is exactly what the readmes are going to look like. This is how the structure is going to be. This is how I define like when it should be a new gem versus going into a current one. You start to be able to have those kind of shared resources above. So then it's, I mean, I'm not Ancane. I don't have 500 <laughs> popular gems where I don't know how he does that. I mean, that's Seriously. Amazing. <laughs> that guy. But yeah, but like you get some, you know, pulled out shared similarities and efficiency and stuff like that kind of helps with it. Then it's the same thing for writing, like writing. I remember talking to somebody about writing, like, I think it was an old authorization post and they were like, Oh man, how long did that take you to write? And I was like, Oh gosh, it took me at least like four or five hours. And they were like four or five out. Like they were like, that's, I would have thought that would take me like 20 or 30 hours. And I was like, Oh, I felt like four was really long because a lot of times I just have something to say and it just spews out. And then the hard part is going back and editing and fixing the typos. That's the part that takes three hours, you know, like the first, the initial, you know, post when it gets written, it's like, you just, it comes from within and it's like, I just have to let it out. So that part is less hard, but I'm an excitable person. I get excited about things. I get fired up. I, there was a time when everyone around me hated me about talking about Flickr. I always talked about yeah. Flickr all the time. <laughs> I was like, Flickr is the best thing ever. You got, oh, let me tell you another thing about Flickr and how good Flickr is, you know, like <laughs> F-L-I-C-K-R for people that are too young and don't know what it is. But yeah, I just get excited about things and I talk about them. So I feel like when you got the energy and then... You do it a lot, you get better and faster at it. And so that just makes it easier to fit in. Cause I wouldn't say that I spend a ton of time on those things in particular. It's just that, you know, they just build up consistency over time is more like, you know, that's more, I think what made it happen. Yeah. And you focused on what you were most excited about, which probably helped just propel it. Yep. Makes sense. Yeah. Cause okay. if, you're, if you're like, oh, I need to write four articles this month and then I will sell my advertising wares to other people. That's not Maybe some people get excited about that, but I didn't get excited about that. But if I was like hacking on something in gauges and I was like, oh, this is super cool. I need to like, I want to tell somebody about this. So then I would write it up and that is fun. It's, oh, this is cool. And 
honestly, I, I found over, over the years, the biggest benefit with writing is just, and you'll find it with doing this podcast or anything. It's just organizing your thoughts. It's like you have all these thoughts and then you move on to the next project and they never get organized. But if you write them, then it's like your brain is like, oh, cool. I have all these new connection points. And they're like, you know, you have headlines and you have all these things. And then it like, it organizes in your head and it makes it really concrete. And then you don't forget it. And so then you're even better the next time, you know, when you run into a similar problem and stuff like that. So I feel like the writing really helps organize your brain, which I think is why people are like, keep a journal, write, hire writers, given two people that are equal, choose one that writes better, like all that kind of stuff, because it really does make a difference long-term. It's a, it's another like consistent long-term thing. It's so funny when you think you have something clear in your head or like these thoughts, and then you, you go to write it down. You're like, wait a minute, this isn't quite right. I, I don't get from A to C. I got to make some other connections. Oh yeah, definitely. I feel like makes it a lot more clear in your head. There's things that I still remember from like the Rails tips days because I wrote them up. They really stick in my head. And then there's other things, you know, where I've had periods like at GitHub where I didn't write very much. And a lot of that stuff is a lot more fuzzy. It, it's a lot more fuzzy. But we had an internal engineering blog that wasn't public. It was just for like disseminating information, you know, internally. And like the stuff I wrote up there, I can still remember it. I still know that I did those things. I remember those. But like anything that that I didn't write about, it's very fuzzy at this point. So... When Chris approached you guys about being acquired, how did you think about that in terms of, well, how do you place a worth on that? The finance community, the SMB community, you know, typically says like you take revenues or profits and 3X that or, you know, some formula, right? But for services businesses, it's a little different. And how did you guys go about figuring that out? So basically he flew into South Bend. We hung out like the whole day and the night. Then, you know, went back to his hotel, met for breakfast, et cetera, just had a bunch of conversations on stuff. And that was like, do we even want to do it kind of a thing? And then we were like, yeah, let's definitely talk more. And so then they flew us out to San Francisco. And so then that's when we talked numbers. And I remember like they had the situation room and like the GitHub office, like 2.0. And it was like, I remember it was blazing hot and none of us like on either side had been involved in anything like this. So they hadn't acquired anyone. We had never been acquired. It was probably the most awkward hour of my life or two hours. <laughs> like it was, and I imagine it was for them too. They were obviously cash flowing really well at that point, but they were putting everything into hiring new people. They were basically like, here's the vision of why like going with us and probably not getting very much cash, but getting shares is worth something. So like, I remember Defunct showed us Adam. That was, I don't remember when that, 2011. So it's 2011. Wow, I didn't they, realize it was that. They didn't have Adam and I don't think it had a name or it was a different name, but like he showed us like, this is like this thing, this bridge I've hacked together between Mac OS and like, you know, HTML and JavaScript. And we think this could be huge. And, you know, they were kind of pitching that. And it was mostly an aqua hire. They just wanted, I think they kept saying strike team. They wanted four or five people who worked together really well, just come in and solve certain problems. And then we came in and we all went on five different ways. Like we didn't- This is what I was wondering. That, I, my, that was my guess that happened. Why do you think that happened? If a company wants to acquire you in terms of, hey, there's this really great team and we know that they can influence our culture or solve very specific problems, what leads to that not working? Or maybe there were other things that became Not keeping together. I don't know for sure. I think what happened is GitHub was a large company at that point. We were 45 through 50. So that's a lot of people and they had a lot of different problems. And so not problems like bad, but just like things to work on. You know, there's a, a lot of exciting, fun things to hack on. And there was no structure or organization. Everybody just worked on whatever they wanted to. So when we came in, we all just, we 
all five of us are problem solvers. We weren't, Hey, like you do this, you do that, you do this. Like people, we were like, we created our own company, you know, went out on our own and, you know, kind of tried to make our own rules. So like you put us in a new company and you don't give us rules, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to say, well, what looks like the thing that's missing that I can help with, you know? And so I think that's what just, we all did. So like Steve did a lot of design on the Mac app and stuff like that. You know, Matt bounced to a lot of different things. Brandon was on like, and Hoyt were both on like talks for a little while. And then Hoyt was very much like he is customer support and he did that for us. And so he started working on the help system and the support system. So like we just all naturally went to like kind of things that we found interesting and that was okay because GitHub didn't really care. They thought they wanted a strike team, but then I think in the end, it didn't really matter. I remember very specifically when Chris first like threw out the numbers, he was like, honestly, he's, I'm just going to be direct. We all feel really awkward right now. And we feel embarrassed like by the offer because we don't feel like it properly values you, but it's what we can offer right now. So this is what we're going to do. It wound up being fantastic, but like back then it was hard to say. And I, I guess to answer that question, two questions ago is basically how do we value it? How do we do all those things? They made an offer and I was like, don't take the first offer. So I was like, all right, cool. We don't care about the cash. We care about long-term value. We went double the stock. And they were like, no, we'll give you double the cash. And we're like, okay, fine. <laughs> that was literally the whole, there was no evaluation. There was no like how much, you know, revenue, how much any of those, it was literally just like handshakes. And then I was like, we have to either take on more work and we'll be able to start in like three or four months, or we have to start like in a week. Cause like, we're right at the end of a cycle where we put a lot of effort into our products. And so we need to fill the coffers or whatever. And so he was like, all right, next week. And so we had signed no paperwork. We literally just shook hands. We started working December 5th was like the first day. I remember it because we got the whole crew into South Bend and, you know, went out to breakfast and we have cheesy videos shot on Motorola razors and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. And then I remember the lawyers took forever. I mean, it was like three months before we actually signed the paperwork and stuff like that. It was kind of chaos. So there was no formula, no evaluation. There was not even signed paperwork. We just shook hands. And I, I just found the other day, I had this, they used to give out offers that were like an HTML page. And it was like, John Nunemaker is like a kick booty developer or whatever. <laughs> and so we're going to give you X salary and these benefits. And it was just like an HTML page that like they sent everybody. And I just stumbled on it. Yeah, it cracked me up because I had kind of forgotten about that. But at any rate, like there wasn't anything. There was, it was just like we got together in a room and all got sweaty and awkward and just hammered it out. And then there was like two emails back and forth after that. And everybody wanted to do it but me. I was the only yeah. one that was like, no, I don't think so. We're fine. Like we don't need to do this. If we were going to get bought by anybody, I would choose GitHub. I wouldn't choose anybody else. And I would not accept an offer from anybody else. But I was like, we have our products. They're growing. They were maybe paying for like half to a full person of our team. I was like, we don't need this. I think either way we could end up in a good situation. And is it better to have a hundred percent, you know, of control in a small thing and hundred percent of, of ownership or like a very like small amount of control and a very small percentage. I mean, it was, I think all of our shares added up were, you know, I mean, they were less than a percent. So you're talking like a very small percentage. But that's a big pie. Yeah, but it ended up being a big pie. So it's fine. But you don't know that back then. And I remember my dad who like he started his own farm and has been doing that for 40 years, whatever. And I remember he was like, you don't make money working for somebody else. I remember him saying that, and he's not one to give advice, but he was like, you don't make money, you know, working for somebody else. You got to start your own thing and you got your own thing. So why would you go and sell it to somebody else? And I said, well, I just kind of got a feeling. And so now I rub his nose in it, but <laughs> yeah, remember but, that? <laughs> you know, back then, yeah, you don't know. 
So you just, you really don't know. It's just kind of a gamble and they were cool people, cool projects. And so it was fine. Definitely have some of the best, you know, work connections that I could have ever had from working there for, you know, six or seven years. But yeah, you don't know looking when you're in that moment, looking back, it's easy. But one of the things that I'm curious about from that experience is were there things that you learned or things that you needed that you couldn't have gotten staying at ordered list? Staying in a smaller dev shop, building your own products. Was there something that came out of that, like working at this rocket ship or just at a large, you know, dealing with enterprise kinds of concerns that coming out of it now you have leveled up in some way that you didn't expect? Yeah, to tack onto that, I think us as indie developers, a lot of times we, if we haven't had a job in like a bigger or enterprise organization, we wonder what are we missing out on or what skills and things are we not getting? I definitely learned a lot. I don't know if this is the right way to say it or not, but I feel like I learned a lot of things not to do. Again, but everybody's different. There's nothing wrong with working at a big company. It's just not for me. I'm just very aware that that is my last result. I can't do it on my own. I am not succeeding. I'm not supporting my family, that kind of stuff. And so at that point, I'm like, okay, I'll go work you know, for a big company. So I, I learned a lot. I learned about options. I learned about shares. I learned about preference stacks. I learned about, you know, the SEC, things going wrong, learned about buybacks, learned about management. You know, if you're like a, you're not a manager, you're low level, you know, if you're five, six, seven levels down, you got to track everything you do. I mean, you just, you have to, if you don't do that, then nobody knows what you're doing. Towards the end, I actually had a repo that like I I kept track of every single thing that I did every single week. So I like had this long history of here's everything that I did. Here's everything that like, you know, when I talked to my manager, they said I should do this. So I did this, like I kept all that kind of stuff. And I don't like doing that kind of stuff, but like definitely learned some of those kinds of things. I think overall though, like indie, again, it's different strokes for different folks, but like, that's my route. That's what I love. I don't want to work for somebody else. I like to have autonomy and control. As soon as that went away at GitHub, I don't know when when that was 15, 16, somewhere in there, it wasn't fun anymore. And I had a strong desire to get out. So are you missing anything? I I don't think you're missing anything. I think it's more just, if you see the other side, you definitely have a more of an appreciation and love that does give you two sides. So then you can compare. So like it benefits you and then you can compare and say, which do I like better? So I actually told several people that I've talked with, go work at a big company, learn all the things that are terrible, and then go do something else. And also see how the sausage is made or the pudding is made, whatever the phrase is. I worked at a small consultancy, was my like my first job after like the RV thing. And I saw how he sold to people. I saw how he priced things. I saw what he paid me versus what he charged. And I was like, why am I not doing this? You know, like (laughs) there's a 50% margin there. That means I should be getting that 50% margin. So immediately I started, as soon as I left there and went to Notre Dame, I started doing consultant work on the side. So I got clients. I was doing that kind of stuff to like, I've always had side projects because I'm like, if the margins there, like, then why shouldn't I get the margin if I'm doing the work and I'm willing to just do a little bit of overhead also? And it's not a crazy amount of overhead. It's not like an insurmountable. Anyone can learn sales. Anyone can do QuickBooks, like those kinds of things. It's not hard. It's just, it's not your ideal day. But if you can do a small fraction of that to have double margin, do it. So part of it is just like going out and seeing how other people, you know, navigate and build a company in the world is like a really valuable thing. So from that standpoint, very valuable from like an enterprise standpoint or from like, do, am I more equipped to do enterprise sales? No, I was never involved in that. So I have no clue what 
what I would even do to sell to the enterprises. I have no idea. But I saw a lot of the things that I wouldn't want to do. And it's narrowed my focus and what I would want to spend my time on and helps me realize like how the other side does work. You know, so I have and the options, shares, stock, all that kind of stuff was super valuable because I saw like a lot of interesting things there. I mean, I could probably do a whole podcast episode just on that stuff. That was definitely an interesting side. But yeah, I don't think we're anyone doing indie. I don't think you're missing out, but I think it's good to go do it for a couple of years. So you, you know, if you're missing out or not, and then you have a comparison. Was there a class of technical problems that you would not have come across? I think that's a, a fair thing to say, except I had worked on words of friends before and scale wise, that was like, that was, you know, huge. That was the biggest thing I've ever worked on because I worked on that. Then I, I felt like I understood the general technical side of partitioning, you know, sharding, whatever you want to vertical scaling, all that kind of stuff. Cause we kept getting bigger and bigger servers and it kept eating those servers up. And so then we had to put it across multiple servers. Like, so from a technical standpoint, I had, I got lucky to have been in that experience before. And if I hadn't been, then I would have definitely learned that stuff at GitHub. The only things I think that I learned that I probably won't ever learn anywhere else, like multi-data center stuff. Like that was one of the last things I worked on was like making it so that like we could terminate SSL requests in Seattle for people going farther west. And so it's to be able to like have SSL termination there and then pipeline a, a whole request across to you know our data center and bring the whole request back or try to serve it from read replicas and stuff there and you know reducing the latency because you can't do like if you have 100 you know network calls on a page and you have a minimum of like 6 to 10 12 you know milliseconds of latency you can't do that when you used to have you know 0.3 you know, milliseconds of latency. So learning some of those things and the multi-data center and seeing how the ops team did some of the stuff that they did to like pipeline requests with HA proxy across. And like some of that stuff was like really cool. I definitely could not have learned that from like any small business. That's not a thing you would get a taste of. But the biggest thing I learned was just like, I don't want to have a big company like that ever. I don't really want to be in one unless I have to. I'm happy to help them in any way that I can, as long as it's from my small controlled area. My safe place. <laughs> I get it. Yeah, totally get that. You guys had an office with ordered list? Just for a little while. Yeah, there was like this building. I think it's called the St. Joe building. It's like this big, ugly rectangle. And it had a tiny little tower on the one end. And it was like right next to the St. Joe River that goes by there. And there's a bridge and it was just a beautiful view, big windows out of it. And like nobody wanted that tower because no one could get to it. If you had customers coming in, they couldn't find you because it was like in the back and you had to take this borderline freight elevator to get up there. And we were like, this is perfect. No one can find us. <laughs> and so they let us paint it, you know, bright green to match our website and all that kind of stuff. We had it for like two years. It was like a two year lease. And then GitHub bought us and we just let it go. There was no point in having it. And there were some problems with it as well. Temperature yeah, I was wondering if, if you guys still work together in person after the acquisition. Yeah, we did. So we actually, a co-working place opened up in South Bend. And so we started going there together and we had the little, and GitHub paid for it. We had the little office there that like was just for the two of us. We could leave our equipment there and stuff like that. So we would still go into South Bend, still have our walks to the coffee shop, all that. It was basically the same. We just got paid by somebody else. So that was very similar. And then once I had kids, then it was like, I'm not really going into the office. I'm working from home. And so then we kind of let that go as well. And now the kids are starting back in school because they're eight and five. And so now, you know, we have, again, a co-working place in South Bend. And we'll go there sometimes. We'll go, Steve has a barn with an office in it and it's nice. We'll go there sometimes. And then, you know, sometimes at my house, but it just kind of varies. But most of the time, honestly, we 
have tuple or tuple, however you pronounce it. And we have a paid account for that at box out. And we use that all the time. Just if we need to screen share or do a call click or stuff like that. So John, I'd love to hear more about the origins of flipper and your work on that, both the project and also maybe it's application at GitHub and then how you got from there to flipper cloud. The origins like of the project were basically when I was working on words of friends at ordered list and we were having like, you know, massive scale. I always joke that I, all I did was write memcache for two years when I, I at one point over two terabytes of memcache clusters, it was ridiculous. And so like, it was basically an in-memory database with some persisted state elsewhere. But if we ever had to hit that, the site went down basically. So I learned a lot about like write through caching and read through caching and like all these kinds of different techniques. But every time you change caching access, that's a problem because now you have a cold cache. And so I was trying to put out this new caching mechanism. And I was working with Jesse Newland, who worked at GitHub, and I've worked with him a whole bunch over the years. And he was the one who, who brought me onto the project. And he was like, another person I met at a conference, go to conferences, all my connections that I've made over the years that have been helpful to me were from conferences. So I don't go now because I'm too lazy and I have kids and stuff and I need to start <laughs> doing it again. But Jesse was like, well, I've saw this like rollout, like feature flag thing. What if we tried that? And I was like, okay. And, and our basic workflow is like, Jesse would be like, okay, here's the problem and here's an idea. And then I would be the code monkey that would make it work. How did the feature flag fix your caching problem? So how it fixed our problem is because when you have a cold cache, you need to warm it. And if you warm it all at once, then you're down. So what we did is we were like, okay, we're going to switch the caching strategy. So I made a feature flag, you know, the first one that was like new, new underscore cache or something, you know, really basic like that. And, you know, we would pass in like the, I think the person making the move and then it, it, but we basically just used like the percentage rollout so that we had a consistent, like once you were in the new cache, you always got the new cache unless we rolled back, in which case that was not a good thing. So we made very certain we could just, you know, roll forward because if you roll back, you need to roll back with and not going to the stale cache. So there's some tricky stuff, but at any rate, we were like, okay, how do we warm this slowly? Well, let's start with like 1% because every time we rolled it out, it brought the site down every stinking time. And it was just like, I mean, we tried three different things and it just brought the site down every time. We're like, how can we get this out? So we started with 1% and we're like, okay, we're not down. And 5% we're like, we're still not down. We got to a hundred our new caching was all out. And I, my mind was blown. I was like, this is the coolest thing I have ever done, you know, since rails. And so I was like, this is cool. So and you're, we were using, you're using the rollout jam at this point. Yep. Yep. We're using the rollout jam. The only issue that I had with rollout, I had a couple, like one, it felt kind of ugly. Cause they were like, it was like activate and activate something else. And it, the actual DSL for doing stuff just felt like a little bit weird. And then the same thing like used for actors, it just, at this time, it had just did an ID. There was no like namespacing with a class. So you could only have one type of actor. And then the other thing was like, it used Redis and like, God bless Redis. It's got us to where we are today, but like Redis on almost every site that I've ever worked on, it's not its fault, but it's so great and easy to use from a dev standpoint that like people use it in ways maybe they shouldn't, or maybe they weren't prepared for. And the whole like running out of memory thing, just, it always becomes the weak point in the stack. And so Redis, we would overload Redis with feature flags, calls and stuff. So we're like, okay, what can we do? Well, we had tons of memcache and the memcache stuff had, you know, a local like memoization per request so that you didn't get foo and then get foo again. It didn't go to memcache, just went in memory, you know? So we're like, okay, well, why don't we just front all of the rollout stuff with memcache? So we like forked rollout, fronted it with memcache. And so then we didn't go down anymore because we were going, you know, our source of truth was Redis. But our access was memcache, which we, you know, had uh, infrastructure for. 
you know, the alternative is we could have beefed up our Redis, but we already had something else. And I was like, that's when I was like, this feels wrong. Like, why do I have to fork a project and do all this work to switch the storage mechanism? Because this is a very clear storage mechanism. And it's a very, it's a simple data structure. It's basically a hash of, you know, here's a couple different like types of things and how they can be enabled. And I was like, this doesn't really make sense to me. So I was like, well, you know, part is probably like, just, I don't know. At that point I was working a ton. So I was like, I'm just going to brute force it. I'll just make something on the weekend and see what happens. So it was a weekend and I like started hacking on it and I made like, and I thought Flipper was this great name because like the dolphin Flipper yeah. and like Flipper for, <laughs> you know, flipping features and so, and names and puns and stuff like that are right up my alley. So that's kind of like the origin of the project. I was like, oh, let's just build it. So I built it and like people started using it and I wasn't using it. I just built it and had good tests and like example files and stuff like that. And I was like, it started getting more and more usage pretty soon. It's like catching up to rollout. And I built it on the idea of an adapter for storage. So, which is just, you know, define an interface. It's like get, you know, set, whatever, like kind of a thing. And this is how you build it. And then I shipped it with some adapters in it, like Redis, Memcache, caching adapters for active support, all that kind of stuff. So they're like, whatever storage you wanted to use for your feature flags, you could just configure it to be, to work with that. That way, like whatever you were good at, you could use to store the stuff. That just makes the most sense to me. And I thought that was, that was cool. But like, all of a sudden I realized lots of people were using it and I was like, wow. And like, we were still using MVARES, like ENV VARES at GitHub. I mean, we just, we would change an MVAR and then that, you know, this was deployed or was enabled, but it would always involve the deploy. And we started getting like lines of people to deploy to just like flip MVARES and various things. And it was not great. And my son was born. So I was on, GitHub was super generous. I had four months of paternity leave. I was on paternity leave and all of a sudden like Rob Sandheim and Adam Robin and a bunch of guys like started asking me a bunch of questions about Flipper and they started doing pull requests. And I was like, what's going on? Well, they, they were like, well, we know the author, so we might as well use it. And so they, they put it in and then build a bunch of custom UIs around it, which later I like extracted out. Not, I didn't extract out that stuff. I more just made a UI because I was like, oh, this is probably a thing that people need. The whole time with like rollout and stuff like that, I just did like terminal. It was just command line stuff for everything. But at, at GitHub, then they did like audit logging and they did, you know, a full UI for it. They, you know, converted usernames to actor IDs and back and forth, you know, all the kind of stuff that you would need to like, and, and it was super helpful. And I remember like conferences, you know, what do they call them? They're always universe and like, and that kind of stuff. I remember like looking in chat because everything had chat ops. And so it was like blank is enabled, blank is enabled, blank is like seeing like eight features in a row while like defuncts up on stage. And it was really cool. And I remember even one time, I wish I had, this is one thing that I did not screenshot, but I remember someone saying, this feels like magic. How did eight features just go live on GitHub at the moment that Chris said it out loud? They were like, this is magical. And I was like, it is magical. <laughs> and I looked forever for that. I swear I screenshot it. I cannot find it anywhere. Like that screenshot in chat of when that happened. So the Flipper started on the weekends, but like I worked at a company that like, you know, needed flags and kind of used it, but I wasn't going to force it in or anything. And other people started using it and I was just maintaining it. And then, you know, that kind of brought it into GitHub, other people. And while I was on paternity leave, so I wasn't even like That's at so the funny. computer. Yeah. Um, you weren't even having to advocate for this. Other people were like, we need something. Oh, John's got something. Yep. That's hundred percent what it was. Those guys did all the work and brought it in. And then they even did performance work. There were some slow parts. And so they like sped those up. They're like, oh, you're doing this, you know, dumb thing here. Here's some help. And then they made different adapters. So we were like memcache fronted and my SQL behind the scenes made various middleware to turn on a feature just for the duration of a request 
via a little toggle. So you could like, I'm going to recreate it soon. Like I want to make it cause I miss it. But like you could click a little, you know, whatever gear icon, and then it would show you which features were enabled for the user and which weren't It's just like a checkbox. And so you could be like, Oh yeah, turn like these on for myself right now. And then reload the request and it would reload. And like, they'd be on just for that request, you know, so they wouldn't be on for like jobs behind the scenes or other things, but like just to like change the UI to see kind of what's going on. It was really useful. So just a bunch of stuff like that. And like we had enabled by default CI. So like we had CI matrix where like it ran with whatever flipper enable or disable calls. And we had another one where every feature was enabled by default. So you had to basically encourage people to buy, you know, if they're going to test the state of disabled, you need to actually call that in the test so that, you know, you end up with like kind of testing both sides of the flag. There's a whole bunch of stuff like that, that they did that. That's where I was like, you know, and then it was like 16, 17. And I was like, I kind of wanted to get out. And I was like, maybe somebody would like, you know, sidekick was becoming a thing. And I was like, well, if Mike can do it, maybe I can figure that out, which of my gems. And I'm like, well, people aren't going to pay for HTTP requests. That doesn't make any sense. So I'm like, would they pay for like feature flags? I'm like, maybe, you know, like nothing really existed. Then I found lunch darkly and I was like, oh, something else exists. Oh, they just got 8 million in funding. Oh, two months later, they got 20 million in funding. Oh my gosh, they just got a hundred million in funding. And it's like, oh, this is a thing. Like, this really is this a is thing. definitely yeah. a thing. I would never have guessed that. Like back at, you know, at rollout days, I would not have thought that could be a business at some point. I never would have thought that. I don't know why. Same. But, yeah. I mean, I built it and I saw the impact of it on GitHub and it still did not occur to me. And, and then until I saw the funding for Launch Darkly, and then I was like, oh my gosh, like people would pay for this. So then I was yeah. like, okay, I'm on the availability and the resiliency team at GitHub. Like, how do I make it so it doesn't bring people down? I don't want HTTP requests between me and them and me go down and they go down. That's like the last thing I want. So I was like, really what I want instead is I want like a sync mechanism. I don't want like a TCP connection. I don't want anything like a lot of like even Launch Darkly uses like a streaming, you know, like TCP connection and stuff like that. And they have, then they, at some point it was like, well, you know, my app's down because you're down and I can't boot because it's trying to connect. And it's like, yeah, that's a problem. So then they bolt on caching and bolt on, you know, well, you can use this cache for Redis or this cache for in memory and like all these other things. Whereas Flipper, it was like, it's just an adapter. So the adapter can be anything. So the thing that started like the cloud adapter was basically like, okay, let's build like an API, an HTTP API, and let's call that the source of truth. And let's just pull that on some interval and then apply it you know, and so the first adapter was like a dual write adapter or something. So it's like, it takes a local adapter like Redis, Active Record, whatever. And that's like the one that all the reads go to. And then all the writes go first to the source of truth. And then if that succeeds, you know, it goes to the local adapter. And so all your reads are local. They're close to the app. They're fast. They're in, again, the same thing as Flipper open source, where it's like they go to where whatever you're good at. If you're good at Active Record, if you're good at Memcache, if you're good at Redis, whatever you're good at, that's where your reads go. And then we just build the sync mechanism and then the permissions and UI and all that other stuff around it. And once that clicked, then I was like, okay, this can be a thing. I can build this in a way that like, I'm not going to stress out like crazy because if we're down, it just means they can't change things in the remote, they could still even just change things in the local and that would be fine. And then change it in the remote when it's back up and then the sync will be fine. But that's where I was like, okay, I could sleep at night and this would be okay. So I started hacking on it. And then Hoyt, you know, again, Hoyt's just always like the, he's the bulldozer. That's like what we always called him. He would just, he just show up and just bulldoze code. It doesn't think about like writer. I mean, now he does, cause he's very skilled, but like there are times where like, he's just like, he's less worried about, is it right or wrong or will it scale? Or he's just like, get it done. You know, like really good 
get things done. And so he, he was like, I'll hack on it with you. So, and he just got a ton of stuff done. And so I worked on kind of the core stuff. He started building all the users and sign in, sign out, all that kind of stuff. And then we were like, okay, let's bring in more people. And then, you know, he kind of got tired of working on it and other people did. And I was the only one. And I was like, it's not fun for me to work on it if nobody else is, cause I'm only a quarter of the ownership, but now a hundred of the effort. And so then we were like, okay, like I was like, I'll just buy you guys back out. And so then Steve, that's kind of when he came in. And so he, he and I bought them out just for like, you know, the money they had put in. And I don't, it was maybe a little bit more than that, but it wasn't like a, an SMB evaluation or anything like that. And then it was the same thing. Like when we added Brandon, I was just like, all right, look, we were at, you know, this was like a year or two ago. I was like, we're at like whatever, 10 or 12,000 trailing month. So we'll just do three X you can come in for that or whatever. And then with the assumption that like, we're all putting effort in and, and stuff like that. So I feel like that's kind of like the general arc was like, you know, started a GitHub, but I did it on the weekends, not as like a paid thing. And then I was like, this is cool. Other people started using it. I started using it in side projects, then GitHub uses it, but like not related to me at all. And then just keeps moving forward because of that. And then at some point it's like, I want to get out of GitHub. Like, how do I get out? I got to have something. And you see somebody gets funding for a thing that you already do. And you're kind of the de facto Ruby version now. It's like, well, shoot, I should just try it. And so was that your primary focus when you left at GitHub? So when I left GitHub, it was like ridiculous timing because my daughter was born and they were even more generous. And I got five months paternity leave. So my daughter was born in June and literally she was born. I was off. I was at the park, like right next to our house with my son, who was like two something at the time, three. And I saw a rumor that Microsoft was going to buy GitHub. And I was like, no way. Cause like we've got these rumors all the time. And then you immediately would like do the napkin math of like, you know, your number of shares and the share estimated They're like, oh, billions. And you're like, yeah, right. Whatever. And you're like, oh, on paper, like I actually have some money, but not in real life. And I remember all that kind of stuff. And then literally two days later, it was like, there's an all hands. And we're like, that's weird. Why is there an all hands? And they're like, yeah, we're going to get bought by Microsoft. So, but then a lot of people don't know this. Like it takes a long time to make an acquisition like that go through. It has to be approved by the SEC. It has to be approved in the EU. It has to be like, it goes through all these checks and balances. It is very difficult to make something like that happen. And it was a lot of work for the security team, which I had moved to in the meantime. GitHub was still private when Microsoft bought them, right? Yep, that's correct. So you you didn't have a daily evaluation that you could look at for your shares. Nope. And, but that all changed when Microsoft bought them. And they make it like as low as possible internally for tax purposes and stuff, because it's better to keep it low internally. You don't want it to go backwards. So you want to keep it low so it can keep growing up and you can have a good growth story and all those kinds of things. So at any rate, like it was one of those things where it's okay, now, yeah, it is real, but maybe it'll get failed. Maybe it'll still fail or something. But I was like, well, I'm off for five months, so... Good luck. And I literally came back. It closed on a Friday. They you know, announced it, did like a stream to everybody. They're like, it closed, it's final, it's done. Whatever money will be in the bank or Microsoft shares will be, you know, in the next couple of weeks. And then that Monday was going to be my first day back. And I was like, sorry, folks. Because <laughs> I was just, I was ready to be gone. And, and Box Out was there. And so I just used some of the funds to buy in there as a partner. And so there's four of us. So that's what I've actually been working on most of the time, the last three or four years is box out and growing that. And then Flipper is just like continued as a side project, basically, where we're like, if we get customer, like we were using it for like three years, just ourselves, like the epitome of stupidity. Why would we not let people pay us to use it as well? <laughs> really dumb. So finally, like two years ago, I was like, let's just throw a billing in and just see if anybody pays us, you know, and like people started paying us, but like not a ton, you know, I mean, 
even now it's maybe three, 4,000 a month or something like that. It's not like this, like massive success story. Like we're putting in our own cash right now to fund it, to move it forward because we're like, it's now or never, we need to do this or stop doing it. And I want to do it. So I talked everybody else into it. And so, yeah, now we're like really going after it hard the last, I would say three months. And so that's been really fun. But like prior to that, it was just a, sometimes people would buy it. Sometimes people would cancel. We would always help with support. We would build new things when we needed them, but that was pretty much it. There was no intentionality, no intentional sales or marketing, but now it's, I'm just like trying to sponsor, trying to do other things. Cause I'm like, I want to make this happen. So yeah. So that's a very long winded way of like flipper and how it's kind of ended up to now. And now there's 30 different feature flag things out there. So, you know, but I'm like, we're the best at Ruby. So I'm like, let's be Ruby. Let's be rails. Let's laser focus on that, build things that those people need, and then see if it can be, you know, sustainable over the next year or so. And if we can, great. You know, if we can't, we can always scale back and slow down again in the spend on it. But let's see if we can kind of put some fuel on it and make it grow faster is kind of the the theory. So we'll see if I'm right or wrong. I don't know if I am. I feel like it's cool and I love it. And it's just a matter of like people understanding that we're not going to bring them down. That cloud doesn't mean that like you're attached to cloud. It's more of just like cloud is like a bolt on. It's like composition versus inheritance, you know, like it's like a way to bolt on a bunch of things that can happen. But like locally in your app, you're just you're just reading from MySQL or Memcache or whatever. Like you just have to once in a while be able to phone home to update. Yeah. And it helps with all these coordination tasks or all the things that would happen when you've got more than one developer. And for me, I was like, what would I even put in cloud? And that's one of the things I guess, like open source to paid to like, think about is like, well, what will people pay for? Or what do you want to have people pay for? And for us, the distinction that we've been making is basically like anything that involves like organizing analytics, helping people solve the problem of like, can I remove this feature? Is this feature being used? Is it being used correctly? Can I clean it up? Who has access to change it? Who did change it? Why are we down? Anything that's around organization, what's happening, permissions, that kind of stuff is paid. And then if you just want to run with all the rest of the functionality, knock yourself out. It's free. It'll be there forever. No problem in open source giving away the whole thing. It's been around for whatever, eight years, super stable, used by... I mean, I looked it up the other day because I was like trying to find... I found at least, I think, three you know billion dollar companies that are like Shopify, other ones that seem to be using it. GitHub, I, don't, I think they still do. So I'm like, okay, it's there. That's always going to be there. And then I'm just going to carve off like things that I think people would pay for. I don't want to build an adapter for audit logs. That sounds like the worst. That just does not sound fun to have this bigger, like filtering, get a feature and change a feature is a very simple adapter API, but like audit logs and storing them in Elasticsearch, storing them in MySQL, doing this, truncating when they get to like all these kinds of problems. I'm like, I just want to solve that one time. So anything I want to solve one time goes in the cloud product. So permissions, I'm like, that sounds painful to solve as well. Or like two people needing to approve in order to make a change. I don't want to build that for every storage adapter. I just want to build that once. Yeah. <laughs> Permissions aren't fun, much less building them eight times for you know everything. So that's how we've kind of thought about it is basically like, what do we think people might pay for? What do we not want to build eight times for you know every once for every adapter? And those things go to cloud and then everything, or that are easier to scale, like analytics. I don't want to scale somebody's analytic storage on-prem. Like I just that doesn't sound fun to me. Making sure that crons are running to like aggregate metrics and truncate old stuff and like 
all that kind of stuff. Like if I'm going to do that kind of stuff, I just want to do it once again. So go, yeah, that goes into cloud, no brainer. So that's how we've kind of thought about like what's paid, what's free and how to separate those things. Cause it is hard sometimes as well. I don't want to just put something in paid just because I'm like a, someone to pay me. I want to put it in paid because it makes sense there. Like it fits the vision or like what makes sense. So yeah, so most of it's free. It's all there. And all the cloud, like the API in cloud is literally the open source API mounted with a middleware in front to authenticate and stuff like that. So like, it's literally all the code is pretty much in there. It's just, we're just taking away some of the kind of boring and painful parts that people don't want to build every time. That's awesome. I love hearing that story. And I'm very excited to see where this goes. Congratulations on the 1.0 release back a couple months ago with Flipper and uh, getting Garrett on your team. Sounds awesome. So excited to watch it. Yeah, I'm excited too. We'll see. I might just be flushing a bunch of money down the toilet. Who knows? But I believe in it. I think it's a really cool product and it's fun. So what's your major expense? Basically paying for Garrett. Yeah. So yeah, he's expensive. He's great. In your time, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, I definitely like time. I don't count as an expense. I should time. It doesn't cost me money. It just costs me opportunity cost, which I'm okay with not generating more income on that side. Because I have box out. Box out pays the bills. Box out's a great business. So like from that standpoint, I don't worry about it. It's mostly just, yeah, we got to pay for Garrett. And that was something, you know, I don't know. It was just a crazy idea. I was just like, well, what if we just, and I think it's worked. I think it's really worked because now he's like every day, he's like, hey, I have a question about this or I have a question about that. And so he'll pull Brandon and he'll pull Steven, he'll pull me in. And so naturally you just end up working on it more because you see progress. Everything in, in like software is seeing progress when you're not doing it. That's why it's so hard to be solo. It, you know, you can be indie and then have people along for the ride so that you see things change when you're not doing it. Like to wake up and see like all this work done. Permissions has been the last month of Garrett's life. And it's probably been the worst month of his life because I mean, there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of permissions and it stinks. It's not fun to write the code. It's just tons of policies and tons of like if else everywhere. But now it's all done and I didn't have to write any of it. I literally just had to like look it over in a thing and be like, cool, let's ship it, you know? And so it should be out this week. And I'm like, that's neat to see progress when, and if you're able to pay for that, then that's an easy way to do it. Or if you can't pay for it, talk somebody into the vision, make them believe that, that it can be that and find someone that you would want to wake up and, you know, that is batteries included. That's like the biggest thing. Just find somebody that's batteries included that is going to show up and do stuff. If it's not the same level as you as close as possible. John, thank you so much for joining us today. We've really enjoyed the conversation and all the insights you've brought us, your story, your background, and the things that you're working on in the future. So thanks for being on. And before we go, we want to give you an opportunity to share with our listeners, where can they find you? Is there there anything you want them to take a look at? How can we help you? Yeah, I'm Pretty much J Nunemaker everywhere. It sounds really hard to spell, but it's not that bad. Or johnnunemaker.com and anything on any of those outlets. Blab everything there. So those are safe. You don't have to go all over the place. But, but yeah, it's been very fun. I appreciate having you guys on it. I love these kind of conversations. Like I said before, it's really fun. So yeah, thank you, John. This has been great. Yeah.